0: Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville, 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thanks, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. For more on Walter's music, Davine Dial, thank you for managing WPVMFM couldn't do this without you. I really appreciate it. And if you'd like to reach me, Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N A V E and I would like to remind you that we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm writing project. If you would like to improve your writing chops, imaginativestorm.com is a great place to start. So today I have a guest whom I've known just a little bit. We met in Paris. About a month ago, it was a warm afternoon. My friend Lynn Burney, who's been on this show, said to me, I have a friend, her name is Anne Merland, and Anne would like to know more about how to give a TED Talk. So can we meet for lunch? I said, absolutely. So when we met, Lynn and Anne and I hit it off in a little cafe in Paris. What I mean by hit it off is we just couldn't stop talking. We did talk about TED and TEDx and how to give a speech, but we also talked about many other things. So I thought, well, why not have Anne on the show? So welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, Anne.
1: Thank you very much, James. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, it's a pleasure to have you as well. So let's begin. When you and I were talking, you were very animated about your life, about my life, about Lynn's life, about the environment we were in. What animates you? Why do you find life so exciting? And why do you express it in such a a glittery way?
1: Hmm. That's a a lovely question that, that you're asking me. I guess what I love about life is... The, the very first thing that comes to mind for me is human connection. So connections, whether it's connecting to ourselves, connecting to others, connecting to something bigger than us, that's something that really moves me from the inside towards the outside. And life being life, you know, when people and I know this. From the States, there's a difference sometimes that I've observed in the US versus Europe and particularly in France. I have a dual citizenship, dual nationality. In the States, there's something where people are so enthusiastic and curious and there's a free child, the way they come to subjects and people. And there's a caveat to this as well, whereas the French can tend to be more cynical and start picking things apart. And I guess I would put myself a little bit in the middle in terms of when I look at life, life is not a walk in the park at all times. And it's gonna go right back to your question. It means that because life has its moments where it can be excruciatingly painful, loss of somebody or difficult times, when you look at the state of the world right now, it's very pertinent to say that. So what gets me really lit up and excited is that from one moment to another, just through a connection, something very surprising can happen. And because life at times can be tough, it's really grabbing all those moments when you meet somebody new. I'm a very curious person. And connecting with somebody new, connecting to a subject that is different, there's always something to learn. And that to me is a life journey, a life path. So that's what gets me very excited up in the morning. You never know who you're going to meet. You never know where life is going to take you. And even when life is really bad, it can change in an instant, one way or the other, actually.
0: That's all very, very true. Now you live in Paris and you have lots of experiences in the American culture, lots of experiences in the in the French culture. You also are curious about this idea of intimacy. You do a, lots of executive coaching and you have your own coaching business. So you're really involved with cultures and people on many, many layers. So talk about how intimacy emerges in the interactions you have and the people that you connect with. Sometimes intimacy can be one-on-one or it can be collectively in a culture. So I'd love to hear some thoughts on that, please.
1: Great. I'm both a coach and a therapist. And the reason I say that is there are differences and there are similarities As a therapist, the first thing is a client, a patient, I call them clients to stay on an equal basis. There's time to build trust. When in a coaching environment, there are only a certain number of coaching sessions. So, whether it's individual or collective, it's really creating conditions where somebody can feel safe enough to open up and really start showing some vulnerability because if i come and i say to you right now james tell me the most difficult painful experience you've ever had now you might be able to say because you're james (laughs) and you're very open about that but in a context a corporate context if you've got a ceo or you've got a director it doesn't work that way so it's creating those conditions where people can really start to feel safe and it melts something away where they want to open up. So what are those conditions? It's about connection. It really is about seeing a person as they are. It's about curiosity without judgment. And that combination is really magical. But for that to happen, you have to go inside yourself to make sure that that's the space you're in as well. Do I judge myself harshly at times? Yes. But when I'm in a space, not at all. So there's something that happens. It's magical, that intimacy that happens. And it's just that moment where it's a human to human connection, which to me is probably one of the strongest moments in my life, because it's what really matters. There's nothing more important to me than those moments, whether it's individual or whether it's collective with all the people in a room, magic happens. It really genuinely does.
0: When you are working in the psychological arena with your your patients or your clients, and that magic happens, it's usually very delicious. Wow. And it's happened to me before. Occasionally, somebody points something out or I discover something and it feels mucky, almost like I've have the best cashmere sweater I could possibly own, and I, I could wear it forever. I'm held by my own mookiness, if you will, because of that magic experience. In the corporate environment, I've interviewed a number of corporate people. They tend to be rather protected, guarded. Intimacy and magic and all of those mooky things that come out of the joy of discovery maybe don't seem to be as much of a currency in that arena. So my question is, when you work with the corporate clients in one-on-one, the CEO types or the folks in management in a group, when those Mookie magical moments happen, have you discovered how often they work in the positive and do they ever go in the negative? So somebody discovers something brilliant, they're wonderful, and suddenly maybe aren't as well received by the group because of this beautiful thing that happened to them.
1: I, I see what you mean. So I'm I'm, I'm going to answer, and you'll tell me if that that was uh, the question. And for me, my my tagline for my company, Aliox Consulting, is slow down to accelerate. The reason it has not been ill-received, in my experience, I'm not saying that it could never happen, but in my experience, that has not happened because it's something about iteration and going deeper and deeper by slowing down. People will open up and there's an invitation, and this is a really important difference that you actually bring in the corporate world, I've seen consultants or coaches really go after somebody to want to get something out of them. I will never ever do that because we don't know what somebody has gone through. Being a therapist, I work with people who have gone through trauma. So we may be in the corporate world where you have CEOs, directors, VPs, whatever it is, that seem to have it all together and they do in the work area. But that is not to say that they're not protecting something much more vulnerable. So I absolutely trust in the space that they will open up and show what they can at that time. And that in itself is a gift to the other people that are sitting in the room to open up and share what they can share. And some people open up deeply And some people open up just a little bit. It's a little bit like popcorn. Some pop immediately. Some pop after a while. And some don't pop. And that's okay.
0: (laughs) So I'm thinking of the sunrise right now. I meet very few people who look at a beautiful sunrise. I don't think I've met anyone who looks at a beautiful sunrise and feels ill thoughts about the beautiful sunrise. Most people are delighted by this. So I'm thinking what you're describing is a bit of a sunrise in these environments where you don't have any kind of negative take on the discoveries because the sun comes up slowly. I'm thinking the awareness comes slowly as well. So the slowness is what makes it delicious. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: Absolutely. There really is something about that slowness and Some people who do not want to open up, for me, a result is somebody who will say, "I'm moved," or "I find that injury." I'm very uncomfortable with this, but to be able to name it and being recognized in naming that—that is a huge step for somebody to even be able to put words on what's going on for them because they haven't learned to do it. Environments in the corporate space are not always very open to that kind of thing. So even that is a step and the sun rises inside for that person.
0: People hear executive coaching. They hear live coaching. They hear I'm a coach coach for this or for that. For people out there thinking about coaching and wondering exactly what it is, could you help us understand the differences? What's your approach to the executives and how would that be different than say, maybe your approach to me, an individual working with you on a, on a one-on-one non-business basis?
1: That's a, You've got some great questions there. So there, there are some differences and there are a lot of similarities. So I will start with the similarities. It doesn't matter who I'm coaching with. A good coach will get very clear on contracting with a client, whether it's personal work, whether it's professional work. So that's the very first thing. Younger coaches or coaches who aren't trained enough or don't have enough experience, a client may come with something. And they'll see something else and they will want to go after that something else. And that is absolutely not okay. So the very first thing, and that can take some time to clarify, and it can be bringing something else into it, but the client owns the subject and that creates safety. That's really important. That's that's what's similar. What is different is in the corporate space. I spent 25 years in multinational companies at executive levels before actually creating Aliox, and. When people come from the corporate space, it really is about understanding. I'm I'm thinking of the word in French, uh, les enjeux in French. And in English, when stakes are very high, it's business stakes because executives have to get results. In essence, it's tying that to have a greater impact on the entire organization. So again, it's contracting. And it's also understanding how organizations work so that when you are working with an executive, you can really help that executive on his, her, or their subject. That's the first thing. Now, what coaching is to your second part of the question, it really is a a meeting with oneself to step back and get curious about subjects and things that you bring, partnering with a coach. Who, if well trained, will know how to ask pertinent questions to really get a shift in perspective, to have more impact in your life. Or if there's a subject that's a challenge for you, if it's a life coaching, it's from that challenge. How do you get your energy to then move forward to reach a very clear and exciting objective for you? Because it's got to be in the positive, or else the brain will not wanna move forward. That's what it is. It's a space for you and yourself with a partner.
0: What would be an example of a well-placed pertinent question versus a clumsy question?
1: Well, your question is a pertinent question. You've just done a wonderful coaching question. You're gonna go into my space, what would be a pertinent question? So what's gonna happen here when you ask me that question? I'm gonna go, huh, see how my my eyes can go up what would be a pertinent question to me? So first of all, it's going to be a very open question so that I have to go and search what that means for me. A clumsy question could be a very close question and that does not serve the client. I want more information so that I can understand what's going on for you, James. That's a clumsy question because I'm serving myself. I'm not serving you.
0: Say more about the idea of clean language, clean coaching, clean approach so tell me more about clean coaching and that clean approach that you use
1: in the word is the response in in clean it's creating a space for a client to be with himself or herself and the coach through language and posture and the questions will not want to pollute anything for the client so that the client could interact with his or her own metaphor. So it's a way to question very simple questions, very clean questions. So you went back to a clumsy question. A clumsy question could be a series of four questions that become so complicated that the client has no idea what to do with the question. A clean question could be what kind of pertinent is that pertinent there? Taking the client's words, bringing it back to the client so the client can further the metaphor, the thought, etc. That's what clean is all about.
0: You said also clean coaching is about body language. Can you say more about that? For example, pointing may be a poor way to get somebody's attention, whereas the open palm might be a better way to be more invitational. So yes. can you develop that a bit for us?
1: Yes. In clean, there are few gestures because once a client almost forgets that you're there, it's almost hypnotic at one point, that clean posture is slowing the voice down and creating a space where the client almost doesn't even need to look at you anymore. They're really involved with themselves. So that's that's the clean posture. But what's really important in what you're saying is depending on people's personalities, some will not want to go to clean right away. And it's a coach's job to be able to connect and create an alliance for safety and connection with the client first. So certain clients that come to see me will need me to look at them and really hold. You talked about that sweater earlier and really be held through looking at them, warm, compassionate looking and holding. That I will do, but still having a clean posture. So it's mixing, matching, but making sure that the client is in the center. I will never work with an approach where a client has to fit the approach. It's the opposite. I adapt to my client and then whatever training, whatever I have will move to serve the client. It's all about servitude and serving a client. It really is. It's a humbling job.
0: Changing this around a bit, you've experienced lots of clients. I know that Lynn told me you're really terrific at your job and you, you know what you're doing, you can create magic with great ease. How do you create that magic for yourself? And what kind of coaching do you need to keep you sharp? And do you wake up every morning when that beautiful sun comes up? And after you have your moment of magical aha, do you think, what am I going to do next? Are you clear? Do you get confused? Where does that go for you?
1: Yes. So, James, I am clear 100% of the time because I am so great. I never have a moment of confusion. I am a perfect human being, as you can imagine. (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) More seriously, just in case uh, people who are listening in think that you're working with a completely narcissistic psycho, I'm only kidding. Of course, I know it. Yeah, I have those moments of doubts. First of all, it's really important to tap into my own humanity because I'm no different than anybody else. So I have those moments where there's internal conflict, where I don't know where I'm struggling. That's what allows me to really connect with my clients. So there's a human to human connection that's so vital to me. And something that I have a little less patience for is when I see guru style coaches who come at it as if they're not accessible, that's a complete turnoff for me. Because no matter who you are, where you are in your journey, there's always something to learn. We all have baggage. We all have all of that. So that's the very first thing I want to say. On the second one, as a therapist, I get supervised all the time on my therapy cases and I get supervised in coaching as well because it keeps me clean and it helps me again serve my clients. So I do a lot of supervision for myself. I supervise others as well, but I do that on a regular basis every single month. And if something comes up for me that is a real challenge, I go see my therapist to do the work that I need to do. When I wake up in the morning, I am as mindful as I can be. And the one thing I do when I wake up, uh, I breathe and I just put my attention on my breathing. And the way I'm mindful is I do that all throughout the day before a client comes. I take a few minutes to focus on my breathing. And it's like a muscle. The more I do that, and I invite people to do that, the more we do that, the more it's a muscle. And it just creates a space. I'm no longer the moment. There's just a bit of a space so I can see what's happening. And that's where I'm in my best posture. And the final part of your question, yes, I get coached as well when I'm on subjects, defining moments for myself where I want to take my company, how I want to grow the business, where I want to orient things, because it's a moving and living and breathing thing. I'm changing. You know, I've been doing this now for 14 years. My company is changing. I'm changing as I get older as well. So all of that creates turmoil at times, but it's exciting turmoil.
0: (laughs) But you're smiling on the Zoom call talking about all of your exciting turmoil. When Lynn mentioned your name to me, she said you were interested in doing a TED Talk. So let's take this a little more into the personal arena. Tell us what you're thinking about. Regarding a TED talk or even expanding it beyond a TEDx talk or a TED talk, what message would you like to get out to the world? Something new, some ideas that you're thinking that you think we would benefit from?
1: When I look back on my life and what I do today and why I love to do what I do and why I get up every single morning, is probably the moment, and and you and I shared this when we were in Paris. I lost my mother 10 years ago. And the slow down to accelerate tagline from my company didn't just come up sitting and saying, Oh, let's call it slow down to accelerate. It actually came from an area of my life that was extremely painful because my mother died, and I'll make it very short, but she died through. Doctors being in such a hurry that they didn't slow down. And being in a hurry allows us not to feel, and we will miss some of the smallest things that can literally make the difference between life and death. That was my case. So, the message that I want to give to people is by slowing down just a little bit, it can be painful at times. But it can also be amazing to go and look at what really matters, whether it's a tiny moment, whether it's a defining moment where you need to slow down, that allows you to then accelerate and whether it's in companies, be more effective, be more efficient, have more impact. Or live simply because my mother lost her life because they did not do that. There was probably fear. There was probably ego. There was probably burnout. We know how hard doctors work. It was a combination of all of that. But they didn't see the signs. And when they came to tell us, they never even apologized. So they didn't see the trauma, the despair that we had. And that was extremely painful. So that's a message I would love to leave with people in all areas of their life. Slow down, look at your kids when they're growing up, even when you're working. When your child is five years old, five years old in one month, that month, if you weren't there, you will have missed a moment and you will never get it back. So wherever, if you have a puppy, your puppy won't say a puppy. All those moments that matter, Take time to slow down to understand what's going on so that you can then accelerate.
0: I'm wondering about why slowing down is so potent. And I'm thinking of when I slow down, when I take a breath, and sometimes I forget to breathe. It's like I forget to drink water. So I'll take a sip of water rather than a good drink of spring water. So the breath deeply taken and the spring water deeply swallowed would be the same effect very slow and when i slow down i tend to be much much more productive would you think that slowing down physically oh i'm just going to breathe and i'm going to move a little less zippy do you think that that fuels the creative process to speed up in the best sense of speed where it becomes more productive it expands It moves more synchronistically.
1: 100% because breath is life. And the reason we don't breathe is because we're often heads running around. We forget our body. And our body signals so many things to us. But remember, we've all been little girls and little boys, and we've all had trauma. Trauma simply means being wounded, having emotional wounds. So if you're human, you've had trauma. So what we often do is we cut ourselves off from our breathing, and yet through breath is connection to ourselves, to our brain, our creativity, to the world, to others, and the only way to do that is to slow down and I love what you say at the end that's where the juices start flowing it pops once you start doing that
0: you live in Paris and Paris is a city of sometimes speed also a city of slow down we sit at the cafe you, Lynn, and I sat slowly at the cafe for who knows how long until we couldn't stand it anymore and we had to go somewhere else, but we really didn't want to leave, but we had to anyway. Can you tell us about your life in in Paris and how that environment informs you? Also, I know you went to the University of Colorado and I mentioned the Trident Cafe in Boulder, and you've been there before. So you've had a lot of experience in both mm-hmm. the American culture and also living in France. And I believe you have a family and you're just well established there. And yes. so could you tell us about the French lifestyle so that we get a sense of what it's like and also how that informs your work?
1: Mm-hmm. There's a a real difference when I look at the US, and I'll take lunch as an example, because that's a typical difference. Even in doing business, the French love to eat and drink. So the cliche is absolutely true. (laughs) There's a real cliche. And it's true. (laughs) There's something about French life about enjoying the Epicurean parts of life. So Business can be done through taking an hour and a half for lunch, where people are going to have conversations. They're going to appreciate a good meal, great wine. Cafes are very big, just watching people go by, that's going to be something that's really big as well. In the States, for example, lunch You often eat it at your desk, you go pretty quickly. However, business will be done much more uh, on a golf uh, field. So it's different, but people are people all over the world. How they slow down, how they look at life is not that different. That's what I have found, a human being is a human being. When you really connect to somebody, you meet heart to heart. It doesn't matter the culture, it doesn't matter where you're from. But you have to slow down to let the hearts open, if that makes sense.
0: And when you are off work and you're just enjoying your life, what do you do in Paris that feeds you exquisitely?
1: <laughs> so that's a great question. I do many things because, as you know, I'm very curious. So one thing I do, I have a little dog. His name is Zeke. And I am very lucky because I live near what's called the Bois de Boulogne. It's where the French uh, Roland Garros tournament is. So I go for long walks in the woods. I grew up in Denver, Colorado and Calgary, Alberta. So the forest to me is part of my life. So I do that. I also love to shop in Paris, to go into all the little streets. There are no two streets that look the same in Paris. You'll always discover something incredible. Go have lunch with great food, with friends and family. I love to cook as well. So it's just experiencing all those things, going to museums and really getting culture into my skin because what better city to experience art and fashion and really anything that can nourish me to bring that back into the work, because if I'm not inspired, I cannot inspire anybody else. So it's really about creating that. And then I'm going to come clean with you as well. This is my shameful moment. You talked about somebody uh, wearing shame. It's not too big a shame, but I am addicted to series, television series, all, whether it's Netflix, whether it's Apple, whether it's prime video, I'm addicted to them and I eat popcorn. So that is my little moment where I binge watch series. So shame on me, but I completely take accountability for it. I love series.
0: Why do you think you love series so much? And the reason I'm asking that is because I do too. I was a little boy living in Western North Carolina in the country, and my grandmother would quilt. And every afternoon during the summer and often after school, I would stop by to see my grandmother. She would quilt and guess what she watched on TV the soap operas and I would watch the soap operas with her. And that's where it started for me. Why is it so important to you? Why do you think it's something to be shameful about?
1: I'm I'm teasing when I say it's, it's <laughs> the intensity of how many I watch. That's shameful. Not, not watching them. If you only knew, some people say, how do you find the time? So when I travel, I download all of these, but For me, I've given it a lot of thought about this. And series to me have a mix of different personalities. So it's living vicariously through the others. I get so involved in their lives. But again, it's connecting with the different characters and almost feeling a part of their lives. So it goes right back to that connection piece it's as if i get sucked into the series itself and when it's finished i have a moment of brief saying it's over to separate and then move on to the next one so wanting to be a part and really feeling connected to to the characters i love that i absolutely love that
0: i'm a storyteller i love to do these interviews like this one here and i've watched these TV series for years. Like I said, my grandmother started me out with General Hospital and the Guiding Light all those years ago (laughs) in the black and white days, right? But I have found watching the good, well-crafted series, I have found I learn a lot about storytelling and I've been able to transfer the storytelling arcs into these interviews. I can see a direct relationship between watching a great Netflix series and moving it into these interviews, the tension,
1: mm-hmm. the
0: finding the right little nugget to ask about based on what somebody says, it's a bit like when the character leaves the room and they focus on the pencil on the desk, you know the pencil's going to be the next character in the seat, next scene. I've learned a lot about storytelling mm-hmm. by watching these series. Do you identify yourself at all as a storyteller? And if absolutely. so, how do these series influence that that storytelling?
1: I absolutely believe that I'm a storyteller. I give a lot of conferences uh, for whether it's companies or or people. One of the things that I see in the in the different series is like you, it's emotional nourishment. It's also a process to see how from the beginning, what they need to overcome, what actually happens. And I find that very inspiring for myself when I'm also creating a conference on a subject because something that's really important to me at all times is authenticity. So making it real with examples, but I'll bring in series as well saying, in this series, here is the character and bring that character into my own storytelling and sometimes create my own stories to make a point also, and allow people to know that it, it's not a true story about me, but it's about somebody else. Because I, I, for me, a guiding light is being authentic. I don't want to misrepresent myself or misrepresent others. That's important to me. So very similar to what you said about getting those characters. And even sometimes I use some of the lines in series. I find them so inspiring. I'll take those lines and I'll always copyright and say I got it from here, though.
0: (laughs) What series do you find most influential for you, most compelling? Or do you have more than one?
1: I have more, oh, I have many, many series and in different areas. One that comes to mind immediately for me would be This Is Us. I don't know if you saw that one. It's about a family. It is so well written and you see them go through the different generations. They go back and forth. What I love about this series, it talks about the trials, uh, the fights in families as well, because Show Me a Family That Has Never Fought. And how they work through all of that and the pain and the joy. So that to me is an incredible series that I find so inspiring. And then there are others, uh, The Fall, which is, uh, I think it was a BBC with Gillian Anderson. So that's a thriller with a psychopath who is killing people that scared the living daylights out of me. But I guess it's all the excitement. There's another thing I didn't say. So thank you for your question. It allows me to live an entire spectrum of emotions as well. And that's what storytelling is. That's what I was trying to get to. I will go from the being terrified to feeling angry, to feeling excited, to hopeful, to despair. And being able to live all of that. In the comfort of your own home (laughs) is extremely exciting for me. That's what I think series do beautifully well. And when a good storyteller comes to the scene, which you do in your poetry as well, that's what you allow others to experience.
0: It's interesting, the comfort of one's own home, watching the terrifying scene. In the comfort of one's own home, you know that the world's not going to, at least today, crash on you. And yet your imagination is free to have all kinds of unsafe experiences as well as safe experiences and everything in between. Reflect a bit on that relationship between the comfort of the home and the free-form imaginative process that maybe finds itself a bit uncomfortable.
1: Well, to the earlier point, creating a place of safety Allows to be open to experience new things and things that are scary. Here I'm pushing it because there's a psychopath breaking into somebody's house. I don't wish that on anybody. Nobody should experience that. But there's an entire part of my brain, your brain, everybody's brain, which is not mobilized to constantly check the environment per perceived threat or not. I know I'm safe. So I'm going to let myself experience it because there's a whole part of me that feels safe. I know that when working with clients, either for creativity, whether it's your writing workshops or it's CEOs in companies, by creating that safety, all resources can be mobilized to go and try different things. It's a great question that you just brought up. It's a great question.
0: But the resources then are free to come out while you're relaxing in the safe environment of the home and thus all of the learning that can happen that activity starts to spin around
1: yes and and James one of the things that i get up every day when i go into companies getting people into companies that are in fear You will not get extraordinary results. People will do just what they need to do to get their jobs, but there is no innovation. There's no creativity that can happen. And people confuse safety just for safety. Oh, we want to feel safe. No, it's a ticket to results because by creating an environment of psychological safety, that's what triggers The juices of creativity of innovation and that requires to be vulnerable, or else we stay in our comfort zone. When we're vulnerable, that's where there's emergence.
0: Couldn't agree more. We're getting close to the time you have to go to another appointment. I do want to bring one other thing into this conversation, and this is on vulnerability. When you and I sat together at lunch with Lynn, I recited my French poem to you, and you said, Oh, well, I'll help you. Get the pronunciation right because I'm an American, right? And so I'm, I'm trying to do my French studies. And I told you I'm an eternal advanced uh, beginner in French. Now, you, and
1: artist one, I heard you speak French and your French is good. So well, don't be, it,
0: too- I, I'm, I, you know, but I like to keep myself governed a bit. I want you to, as we move toward the end of this, you work in both French and English. How does the fluency in a second language? Help your imagination. How does it stimulate your imagination? And I also believe, even though I'm not fluent in French, I've decided to just be with the language as a way of encouraging me to stay more and more open. So could you reflect on more than one language and how that helps us to expand? And maybe people are thinking of I would I only speak English. What can I do? Could I learn another language? And maybe you can encourage that a bit.
1: So I would, first of all, so strongly encourage learning another language for oneself first. And often because I'm completely bilingual, so I don't have any credit. I grew up with both languages at all times. So whether it's French or English, it's expanded my world. I was born in Iran. I lived in Canada, uh, Colorado, uh, France. That's expanded my horizon as well because differences expand us differences make us grow and bigger so language by learning more even the intonations allow for creativity because they're going to be different in English in English it's more of a direct language for me in French you use more words it's higher context. And it's more of a song, if you will. Having both just expands, I don't know if I want to use the word toolkit, but for lack of a better word, it expands the creative process in both languages. I have two boys and we speak franglais. You should hear us. I make no efforts whatsoever when I'm with them. Two words in French, one word in English. So we've got this major language. So it just becomes a bigger language. So you you really expand yourself. And something that I have noticed, the French who can be critical at times, they're lovely and I'm part of the French, but they can be very critical. When they're hearing people speak English, the French speaking English, they will criticize, oh, your accent is so bad. And I get very irate with them. I go, stop. If the person can speak a language and can be understood, that is completely honorable and you never want to lose your accent. So this is to you, James. You don't want to lose your accent. It it, it makes you who you are. It singles you out from the rest. And it's charming. We don't all all want to sound the same, whether we're speaking English, coming from the South or New York from the East, wherever it is. You want to have a personal mark, if that makes
0: sense. That makes complete sense. And it's a beautiful place to wind this conversation down. We we don't all want to be the same. So we come back to where we started. You, the coach, showing up, clean language, helping people find their authenticity, helping people find who they are and how to inhabit who they are gracefully, generously, and with compassion. I'm going to wrap my arms around myself and be who I am. And that's just fine.
1: Absolutely. Yes. It's like a warm cashmere cap on a very cold day.
0: That's a beautiful way to say it. And I do love the idea of the warm cashmere cap. Before we go, please tell folks how they can Find out more about what you do and if they would like to connect with you personally or from a work point of view, how would they do that?
1: They can go on our website, it's aliox consultingcom and then they can contact me or my team through a simple email and we'll set up a conversation and we'll connect. We would love that.
0: So, Anne, Merlin, thank you so much for being in this conversation with me. I I really do appreciate it. And maybe we'll do it again sometime.
1: I would love to. And thank you, James, for inviting me into this show. I've really enjoyed it. And remember, you and I still have to make an appointment for your poem in French. (laughs) I'm not going to drop that one.
0: And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Anne Merlin. We have a few minutes before the top of the hour. And in that time, I'd like to just reflect a bit on language. Anne mentioned at the end of our conversation that she would like to make an appointment with me to help me with French. And the reason she mentioned that was when she and I and Lynn Burney were in Paris having lunch Our conversation turned to speaking French. Anne was clearly a fluent French speaker, as she told you already. She grew up speaking French and English. Lynn Burney could speak fluent French and yet she had French as a second language. And I could speak a little bit of French, not because French was my second language. French was a language I decided to study when I was an adult returning student and went back to college in my early 30s. And it is indeed true that when you decide to pick up a language later in your life, it's a very different experience than learning it when you are a child. When I went back to college, I decided to study French not because I wanted to be fluent. I knew that wasn't possible. I decided to study it because I just wanted another language in my life, and I liked the way it sounded. So in the first semester of my return back to college, I took a French class, French 101, and I soon found out that I enjoyed conjugating French verbs, and I enjoyed studying the grammar. I liked subjects, verbs, the past tense, passé composé, the l'imparfait. It was quite fun. So I would sit in the language lab and listen to the words and try to repeat them and get them right. And I would conjugate French verbs, je suis, tu es, il est, while I was listening to classical music. So I felt a bit bohemian. It wasn't that I was learning the language fast, but I did feel bit different. So the language quickly started to influence the way my emotional state was more than whether I could speak it or not, which was good fun. So during my time at UNCA as an adult returning student, I took a semester of French for the entire three years I was there. French 101, 102, 103, 104, and then two more advanced conversational courses that also had grammar involved in them. So when I graduated, three years later, I was 35 years old, and I had enough knowledge of French to think I might be able to speak it. So in the spirit of speaking French, I decided to give myself a graduation present. And that graduation present was a trip to Paris. I contacted my friend, John Ben Hasselt, who still lives in the same place he lived in when I first went to see him and went to Paris to speak French in 1985. I contacted John. He said, sure, I'm here. Come on over. So I bought a ticket, flew to Paris, June 1985. And my goal was to visit John for a few days and then head south to the coast and take a four-week hitchhiking, walking journey around France. Just let the vibe take me wherever it took me. And I did just that. I bought that ticket, and I went to Paris, and I knocked on John's door, and he said hello. And we picked up a friendship that we had had 15 years earlier when we were students at Brevard College in Brevard, North Carolina. It was a reunion. Fantastic. No problem. Unfortunately for my French-speaking skills, John spoke perfect American English, completely fluent. So our language exchange was then, and even to this day, is still in English. And I like that, no problem. But it is a little bit of a liability if you want to learn how to speak French. So when I arrived in Paris that first time with my French in place, I attempted to try to speak it, and it was really, really clumsy. That's when I realized that if I wanted to speak fluent French, I would have to spend ten years living in Paris. I knew that wouldn't be possible, so what I realized was that I would have to be satisfied with having an awareness of the French language, but not really ever being able to speak it fluently. That was okay with me, and even now, all these years later, 1985 to 2023, sitting there with Anne, Anne asking me, well, how's your French? I said, well, I'm an eternal advanced beginner, which is just fine. I did tell her that I was attempting to learn a French poem, Barbara by Jacques Prévert, and it's a very long poem. And even though I would never be fluent in speaking French, I could have a fluency around one poem. So she asked me to give her a sample of what I was working on. Now, I will say, I'm very shy about my French accent. And I know I shouldn't be, as Anne said in our interview. You have an accent. Keep it. Everybody has one. That's the whole point of people speaking. Whatever you say belongs to you. But still, I was shy. But I did give her a sample, so I'll give you a little sample of it now. It goes like this. «Rappelle-toi, Barbara.» Il pleuvait sans cesse sur Brest ces jours-là, et tu marchais souriant, épanoui, ravi, ressalente sous la pluie. Rappelle-toi, Barbara, il pleuvait sans cesse sur Brest. Now the translation is, remember, Barbara, it rained all day on Brest that day, and you walked smiling, flushed enraptured, streaming wet in the rain. Remember, Barbara, it rained all day on Brest. Brest is a town in the far west of France, on the coast in Normandy, and it was bombed by the by the Allies in World War II. And it was also one of the ports for the Nazi boats. So there's a big World War II story around Brest, and Brest was destroyed. And the poem Barbara is about the destruction of Brest and also about coming back to life, trying to remember the best of the town. So that's what the poem was about. So I recited that to to Anne and she said, oh, that's very nice, I like the way you do that. So if you would ever like for me to coach you on the language around Barbara by Jacques Prévert, I'll be glad to do it. So when Anne and I finished our conversation, which you just heard, she invited me to make an appointment so she could help me with my poem, "Barbara" by Jacques Prévert. I'll never be a fluent French speaker, but I do enjoy the language, and I do look forward to working with Anne on on a new poem, one that I've been working on for a long time, but still don't quite have. But as Anne said, I can work on it, I can improve my accent, I'll still keep my American accent, but I'll clean it up a bit. And that's the whole point, the process. Working on something, making it happen, whether it's a language or whatever art form you choose, poetry, songs, just let it happen. Play with it. Keep yourself in the process of of creating rather than in the desire to make everything exactly right. So on that note, I'd like to say thank you ever so much for tuning into twice five miles radio fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering i'm your host james nave always airing first on wpvm lp asheville 103.7 and streaming online wpvmfm.org the voice of asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like kcei cultural energy radio out of taos new mexico Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. For more on Walter's music, thank you, Devine Dial. For managing WPVM-FM, they are in Asheville on Wall Street. And Robin Collier, thank you for holding KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, together. I do appreciate that as well. If you'd like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I would love to hear from you. And I'd like to remind you also that we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing chops... ImaginativeStorm.com is a good place to do that. When you storm your imagination, you give your rational mind something to work with. And when you put your imaginative process together with your rational thinking, it becomes a collaboration. And it becomes a collaboration that produces interesting written work that's full of energy. ImaginativeStorm.com So, like I said, once again, thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice 5 Miles Radio. And I do hope you come back sometime soon. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.